name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lately, beloved in the Lord, we have been hearing questions that begin with the interrogative pronoun, who? Last Sunday, for example, when a woman with a chronic hemorrhage crept up to touch the garment of Jesus, he turned and inquired, who touched me? Likewise, today's gospel, the parable of the Good Samaritan, responds to the question, who is my neighbor? And at the end of the parable, Jesus inquires, who showed himself a neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? This morning, I propose that we reflect on this interrogative pronoun, who? Indeed, I want to suggest that we begin but not by not treating it as an interrogative at all, but as a substantive. What happens if we treat the word who as a substantive instead of an interrogative? I hope to treat this question under three headings. First, self-consciousness. Second, self-consciousness as the basis of conscience. And third, the social bearing, pardon me, the social burden of being a person. First, let us begin by treating the word who as a substantive rather than an interrogative. What happens? Well, a measure of confusion is likely to ensue. As much as the point is, at first hearing, subtle. A well-known precedent indicates that not everybody will understand what the distinction means. In March of 1938, when I was one month old and lying in my crib listening to it. The actor Bud Abbott told Lou Costello, who's on first? It was a simple declaratory sentence. Not too hard, one would think, to grasp. Costello, however, misunderstood. Abbott's comment, and assumed that Abbott was asking a question. Who's on first? A well-known discussion ensued, and the preparatory research I made for this sermon, I listened to this discussion between Abbott and Costello, which lasted more than eight minutes. I'm told there are versions that last 20 minutes. 
I couldn't take more than eight minutes. Abbott intends the word who as a substantive, while Costello insists on hearing it as an interrogative. I suspect that most of you have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> but some of you do. If you want to know what I mean, simply Google who's on first, okay. or Abbott and Costello, you, you'll get it. These two men worked for several decades as a team called Abbott and Costello. But then something happened. A few years before his death, on March 3, 1959, Costello asked Universal Studios to change the name of the team to Costello and Abbott. <laughs> Suddenly, you see, it became very important to determine who was on first. In last Sunday's gospel, Jesus turned and asked the question, who touched me? When the disciples quibbled about this, Jesus exclaimed, somebody touched me. He would not permit this woman to remain anonymous. For 12 years, she had thought of herself as a nobody. But to Jesus, she is a who, a somebody. He will not permit her to be concealed or lost or absorbed in a crowd. She is a who. She has an identity. She's somebody. Now, what does it mean to be a human person? That is the question. In other words, coming back over and over again, I probably will preach something on this every sermon the rest of my life, although don't take that as a, an excuse for not coming to hear it. The question is anthropology. What do we mean by human being? That is the great issue of our day. The answer to that question is front and center to the Christian gospel. Christians insist that each human being is a who, including the unicellular being in the human womb. The human being, we insist, is not a more highly developed animal, but a creature with whom the creator shares one of his own qualities, namely conscious subjectivity. To be made in God's image and likeness means to be endowed with the capacity for self-awareness. I have spoken on this subject several times over the past year and in recent months because it poses a serious question for contemporary cognitive science. Let me identify it again, if I may, because it touches on the very notion of personhood. 
The problem for cognitive science, as I see it, is not a problem of consciousness. We Christians do not deny that consciousness is a feature that we share with the higher animals, animals that have reached a certain level of functional complexity. This is obvious in our choice of family pets. If they're not too dangerous, we pick animals who have brains and demonstrate the quality of consciousness. We pick cats and dogs and canaries. Sometimes we pick fish, but we don't look for much. But we don't pick all animals. We do not, for example, pick unicellular flagellates. We don't pick amoebas. We insist that our pets be conscious beings, more or less. The problem for cognitive science, then, is not consciousness. The problem for contemporary cognitive science is self-consciousness. The first-person awareness that distinguishes us from other animals, which enables us to identify ourselves. See, the reason that when I try to discuss philosophy with my cat, which I have tried numerous times, is not that the cat does not understand English. Sometimes I even adopt cat language to try to convey my ideas. But the cat is not capable of an idea. She's not capable of a concept. Because the cat, as far as anybody can determine from the basis of evidence, has no ability to reflect upon its own consciousness. Self-consciousness enables us to, to attribute mental predicates to ourselves. In the first-person case, is that which causes us to think of ourselves as I. Is the quality that prompts other people to address us as you. And third parties to speak of us as he or she. Now this, beloved, is what it means to be a who. To be a who means to be created, but selim Elohim, in the likeness of God. This is why we insist with Bud Abbott that who is on first. And we declare it. We don't ask it. We declare it. Who is on first? Last year I saw an actual photograph. There was no inscription, it was just a photograph. They ran it, probably in Weekly Standard or something. It shows this base runner, it was an actual photograph, this base runner getting a little lead off of first, and the picture is taken from behind, and across his back is written H-U. Just too wonderful. 
second, let us speak of self-consciousness as the basis of conscience. As we rise gradually to self-consciousness, we human beings become aware of ourselves as moral beings, creatures that are called to account, safar in, in Hebrew, it's magnificent, uh, magnificent root, safar, means to count, therefore to give an accounting of, when it's, that's the verb that's used when it says that the heavens declare the glory of God, the heavens give an account of the glory of God. The noun form is sefer, which means a book. Magnificent word. I won't explore it with you this morning. A moral being is a being that is called to render an account. We develop a view of ourselves in the world best described as responsible. That is to say, we learned that the structure of our existence demands a response from us. Responsibility is literally the ability to respond. Was Henri Bergson called le moi social. We develop a conscience perceives human existence in moral terms and ourselves as moral beings. Our self-awareness tells us that our personal worth is in this world is in some measure determined by our moral choices. If this does not happen, we become lower than any animal. We turn into self-absorbed monsters. We turn into the moral equivalents of cancer cells who feed off of society. Among modern writers who explored this problem, it is arguable that no one has excelled Cormac McCarthy. Very dark plays, very dark novels. In his play, The Counselor, McCarthy explores the character named Malkina, a name derived from the word Grimalkin, which means an evil-looking female cat. Taking her cue from the animal world, Malkina has no conscience. She does, however, have two cheetahs, and she has a cheetah print tattoo on her shoulder. Malkina loves to watch the cheetahs as they run after and catch jackrabbits at 70 miles an hour, and that's what she wants to be, and that is exactly what she is. Emulating them, she becomes completely predatory. Particularly, she uses her sexuality in a predatory way to destroy people. 
Malkina represents not the limited nobility of the animal, but the utter degradation of the monster. In his novel, No Country for Old Men, McCarthy explores the character of Anton Chigurh, a psychopathic hitman who murders most of the other characters in the story. He too is a monster. You see, what we're dealing with these days, I'm afraid, are monsters. Two-legged monsters roaming the earth who have no, no conscience at all. Never been taught conscience, because you have to be taught conscience. It's the moi social, it's the, the social me. One li would like to imagine that characters such as those created by Cormac McCarthy exist only in literature. McCarthy himself, however, believes this not to be the case. And I don't believe it to be the case. Contemporary life has produced large numbers of such monsters. They seem to be everywhere. Some of these subhuman creatures live here in Chicago. And human life means absolutely nothing to them. They have guns. They shoot people down for no reason. Human life means nothing to them, and why should it? If human beings are only the more sophisticated among the animals, with what, which is what these children have been taught in school, then what makes any human life special? If it is true that the survival of the fittest is an adequate explanation for the world we live in, then these monsters that roam our streets are perfectly correct in the inference they draw from that premise. And what are we doing here this morning? By that standard, it's nothing more than an exercise in culturalism and sentimentality. The psalmist speaks of this problem when he describes the Israelites during the 40 years wandering in the desert. They wandered, he says, they wandered. Not because of a geo geographical confusion, but because of a cardiac aberration. Let me quote, Am tohe levavchem, Am tohe levavchem. There are people who err in heart. A people who err in heart. During those 40 years in the desert, the real wandering of the Israelites took place inside them. This is why God determined that all of them would die in the desert. They were unworthy of the promised land. Another generation would have to enter that land. That generation was lost. Third and finally, let us consider the social burden of being a person. Jesus speaks of this today when he quotes the Mosaic command, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Remember, that's an Old Testament law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The love of the neighbor sums up the social burden of being a person. The first who question in the story is that of the interlocutor who asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He should have known better. The Hebrew scriptures would have told him that actually. Eight centuries earlier, the prophet Amos had already provided the answer to that question. From the beginning of his book, Amos is concerned for the Gileadites who have been mistreated by the Syrians and the Ammonites. He is distressed with the Philistines and the Phoenicians for their international slave trade. He chastises the Moabites for how they have treated Edomites. It wasn't his problem how the Moabites were treating the Edomites. He's an Israelite. Is it his problem? It's his problem because he is an Israelite. That's what God taught the Israelites. All of these people were his neighbors. The concern of Amos for all these sundry neighbors who were not Israelites was born of his reading of the Torah. From the first chapter of the Torah, Amos learned that all human beings were made but selim Elohim in God's likeness. All of them, as neighbors, must be loved. In response to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable of the Samaritan who took care of the Jew who was mugged by thieves and was left half alive lying along the side of the road. Great rivalry between Jews and Samaritans in this context, great rivalry. When let's look, what's the last sentence of the parable? Go and do likewise. He's holding up to the Jew the example of a Samaritan. That's provocative. What this Samaritan sees in the man lying along the side of the road is not a Jew but another human being, a real who, someone made in God's image and likeness. So Jesus finishes the parable by asking another question. Who showed himself to be a neighbor to the men who was mugged by thieves? If we can accomplish nothing else in this world brothers and sisters. Let us die in the awareness that everybody we have ever met, everybody with whom we have ever come in contact, we have regarded as made in God's image and likeness. No matter how provocative, provocative no matter how disgusting, no matter unlikable, Everybody we meet is made in God's image and likeness. 
Let us be resolved that when we die, we will be able to say that. Everybody I met, I treated as somebody made in God's image and likeness. The true neighbor was the Samaritan. Jesus thus reverses the original question. The who is a man of conscience. The person that recognizes his moral responsibility. The one who sees in this helpless Jew beside the road the image and likeness of God. Amen. Thank you.